From Muhlenberg College, this is 2400 Chew. Your host is Megan Keita. In each episode of this podcast, we talk to one Muhlenberg graduate about their current work and the industry in which that work is done. For this episode, Megan spoke with Bree Booth, class of 2019, a PhD candidate in Latin American and Latino studies at the University of California, Santa Cruz. As we do with most of these interviews, the conversation began by asking how and when Bree became interested in their occupation. It's kind of crazy because I think that I knew I wanted to do a PhD at the age of 14, but it was because I was in the scholar program and the school director had her PhD. And one day I asked her what her PhD was in and she told me that it was in English. And it blew my mind because I was like, whoa, I did not know that people do PhDs in English. And then she was like, yeah, you could literally do like a PhD in anything. And so in that moment, I was like, okay, so I think I can do a PhD. I think I want to do a PhD. Um, And then my uh, junior year of undergrad at Berg, I took a class called Life and Death in the Atlantic World. And it was my first time taking a class that had discussed my research interests, um, like the transatlantic slave trade and gender and sexuality in a class context that felt like it's something that I could continue to do after undergrad. Um, and that professor had her PhD in Latin American studies. So then I started looking for programs in Latin American studies, Africana studies, women and gender studies, just all types of interdisciplinary programs. And I knew that I did not want to leave live on the East Coast anymore. So I started applying for programs on the West Coast. I applied to some in the Midwest and some East Coast programs, but I kind of always knew that I wanted to live in California. So that's how I ended up here at UCSC. Sounds like you were always interested in kind of learning as and scholarship as a career. And I don't really know what that looks like. So can you talk about what a typical day as a PhD student looks like and how it's different from like undergrad, for example. A typical day, it's kind of funny because I think it's a lot easier to almost look at it as like a week as opposed to a day because each week you know what's expected of you. So the assignments aren't really different. Like they're all the same. Usually you have to read a book or a few articles and then you have to write a one, a one and a half to two page response for, for those books. And uh, our classes are three hours long. So that that was definitely a, a shift from undergrad. Um, I'm I don't know how I did undergrad classes, but then coming to grad school and having these longer class periods was like, I don't know what can prepare you to be in class this long, but they do give us breaks. So that's kind of like a typical week is expecting to do at least two papers because you're in at least two classes and reading at least two books because again, you're in at least two classes. And again, that's a bit different from undergrad because I don't have many memories of professors expecting us to read a full book in a week, let alone a whole book in like two weeks, maybe like they were kind of spread out over a, a couple of days, I guess you could say. And you're seeing those professors a lot more often, like at least two times a week. And in grad school, you're seeing your professors like once a week, basically. And so, yeah, I think learning becomes a lot more like. um, What's the word? Uh, focus, right? Because it's like a PhD, but also it just becomes like 
you notice how individualized like being in the academy can be once you realize how much work they expect of you in like a week. But as a PhD candidate, it's a lot different because there are no more classes. So my week looks a lot different. I don't even plan by the week anymore. I can plan more by the day. And that it just includes like some type of research work or writing, which is a lot harder to schedule for yourself when you don't have deadlines being given to you by a class or professor. So a lot more freedom, but a lot harder to have the freedom if you can't set those deadlines for yourself. But I seem to be doing well so far. So it sounds like you're preparing for your dissertation then. Tell me about your dissertation, like what that's going to be about and, and what you've been doing to get that together. Oof. Um. So my dissertation is about intimate connections amongst enslaved people um, in Colombia and Spain. And I read criminal case records from, I'm reading two criminal case records in particular from the 1600s and also the 1800s. I'm just looking to kind of tell a story of sorts about how, number one, about how enslaved people sought out intimate connections um, amongst each other and also with other people, but also how the law and the courts and like communities subsequently mediated how they were able to have these connections, right? Because of the layers of their enslavement, but also the layers of the of their personhood and also just the layers of people who had desires and people who did act on their desires, although they were in a position of enslaved labor and also property to people. Um, so those are kind of some of the things I hope to talk about in my dissertation. I did my first big research trip in the beginning of this year. I spent uh, five and a half months in Bogota, Colombia, and I was using their archive to try and find some things like in the Colombian context that I can put into conversation with the document that I read from Spain. And I did that research during COVID when I won a research fellowship, but I wasn't able to use it because we couldn't travel, but I was able to access a lot of things online. And that's actually how I got my first source for my dissertation, which was really cool. Um, so at this point, I've been translating the documents because both are in Spanish. And I've also been trying to put together a chapter outline. I was recently also accepted into my first academic conference as a grad student this year. And so I'm hoping to present one of my chapters there. So I'm like in this point of the program where I'm not, I'm finally kind of doing all of the things that I felt like I would be doing as someone in a PhD program. And my project is slowly but surely like coming together. Yeah. I know you mentioned that virtual research fellowship that you did with Spain was how your idea came about. But can you talk more about how you went about distilling kind of all of your interests down into this very specific topic? So it actually started at Muhlenberg, this project, which was really helpful because. The project that I came up with at Muhlenberg is what I thought would be the project that kind of carried me through this program. So it has fundamentally shifted from how I saw it at Muhlenberg. But while I was at Muhlenberg, I was definitely already building the foundation of what I'm studying now. And it was mainly through just reading and also the class that I mentioned from my junior year. So when I got to this point of like, OK, now I'm doing research again, 
um, I was really just trying to own in on like what the particulars of what it was that I was actually looking for. So I knew that I wanted to study sexuality. I knew that I wanted to focus on like enslaved people and the connections that they made themselves. Um, and I also know that there are documents, the documents are limited in telling those stories because enslaved people weren't always able to, you know, tell their stories in ways that we are able to access certain documents. Um, so that's how I landed on criminal case records, because in criminal case records, um, even if the enslaved person isn't on trial, they will typically come up in testimonies. And also if they are involved in what the crime was, the witnesses inevitably are going to speak to who the enslaved person was or what the enslaved person was doing. So that's also why I took the route of uh, criminal case records, because it's not necessarily written from the perspective of the government or or from the, the power powers that be per se, but really you're getting different people's opinions of something that happened. And you know that those are being influenced by like the systems of governance and all of these other things. But it's just interesting to kind of read how everything plays out. So that's how I sort of tried to narrow down the project was looking for or trying to identify documents that could make it a bit more specific and also a bit more manageable and also to make it feel doable, like there aren't documents which has been the biggest lesson, I think, just being someone who likes to work with archives is like, there's this mystification about like a lot of things not being there. And then you get there and you realize they have hella stuff. Like there's so much stuff sitting in archives. So that's also fun to think about being able to just dig through there and find like the thing. I didn't even know that I was looking for criminal case records, but then I found that document in Spain and I was like, okay, I'm looking for criminal case records. I know you mentioned that like this project had its roots at Muhlenberg. Did you do research at Muhlenberg? I think you did. Yes. I, I feel like we have pictures of you <laughs> doing research at Muhlenberg from like the summer I started. You said that it has changed since you've been here and how you've looked at it has changed. But what was it that you were looking into when you were here? When I was at Muhlenberg, I had done research that one summer. It was a summer research grant. It was for eight weeks. And I had never done archival research before, so I did not actually really know what I was doing. I was just kind of trying to do the thing. So while I was there, I went to the National Archives online, and then I also went to the Schomburg Center in New York, and I went to the Rare Books Division. Also, that's a part of the New York Public Library. And I had a professor tell me like, hey, if you want to go into these spaces, you know, you have to either call and make an appointment or you have to tell them what you want to look at. And I was like, oh, I thought I could just go in and like peruse and do all these things. So I literally like my appointment right before my the day I was planning to go, I got in contact with them and they're like, sure, you can come. What do you want to look at? And I literally just found like the first three documents that seemed even remotely relevant to what I was trying to look up. And at the time, the project was just about uh, gender socialization and also family dynamics in the new world amongst enslaved Black people. So I found three documents that I thought was like related to that. And they ended up being useful in some way, but it was also a little bit disappointing because I didn't actually get at the things that I thought I was going to get at. And so after that first trip, I was also like, OK, I need to actually learn how to go in an archive so it's a lot more productive than what my first trip was but still the first trip didn't dissuade me because I was like okay I just want to do more archival research like I'm not gonna shy away from it 
Can you talk a little bit about the most challenging and the most rewarding aspects of being a PhD candidate? Oof. The most challenging, I think, would have to be um, the livability of being uh, in a PhD program. My program is fully funded. I have like employment that's guaranteed in some way, shape or form, like I'm a TA and I also have the opportunity to do graduate student research assistantships when they're available. Um, but my first year here, we had a wildcat strike, which was uh, graduate students basically coming together to demand higher wages from our university. And it, it, it literally happened my first quarter here. And in my open house, I had heard that it was hard to live in this city in particular because of high housing costs, but it didn't seem like it would be terrible to navigate so long as we had employment of some sort. And then my first quarter here is when I realized how bad it actually was because of how students were responding to it. And it kind of shook me a little bit because it was like, whoa, I did not expect to like come into an environment that was actually this fraught with like these kinds of emotions about how hard it is to actually live here. Um, and to also see a student response that is drastically different from how like the administration will present these issues, especially to incoming students. So not even necessarily my department, because my department was very honest about the fact that it's hard to live here. But I think the institution presents it in a way where it's like it's doable and you'll be fine. Um, and that strike wasn't the first strike. There was another strike that happened also, but this time other UCs got involved. So it became a bigger issue about getting a cost of living adjustment for graduate students across the state of California within the UC system. And again, it just kind of emphasized like. I'm a single person and I live here on my own and it's fine, like I make it, but there are lots of people who are a bit older than me who have families, who have kids, who like take care of their parents. And then it's like, it just starts clicking like how much we make not being enough. So I think that's one of the biggest challenges. And it's also one of the challenges that is the most, it feels like the most out of our control, even when we are like striking and having these sit downs with the university. Um, and just like the University of California system more broadly. And we won a contract that got us more money, but even the contract itself was a big, we gave up big concessions on the contract from where we started to where we landed. And I think it was a product of the fact that all of the UC schools are obviously in very particular contexts. And our context here in Santa Cruz is a bit different because of the size of the school compared to the size of the city. And also more generally, just being near the Bay Area and Santa Cruz being like the city that's a, a bit of a tourist attraction. And also like a lot of developers build big, big houses here and leave them empty. So like the factors are a bit different being here as compared to other places. So that that is a bit challenging. But the most rewarding part has been the fact that I feel like I was able to replicate the community dynamics that I had at Muhlenberg here in my program, because my program is small. It's also a program that's made up of predominantly students of color and international students. A lot of the faculty are also people of color and or international faculty members. Um, and so the way the community looked and the way the community felt and the values of the people in the community are affirming to how I see myself as a person and also how I hope to navigate my academic career 
And it also makes it easier to deal with the fact that sometimes the university just doesn't listen to us because the university doesn't also doesn't listen to my department, really. So it's kind of like we're just in this flux of like in this space of being like a department that is area studies and also ethnic studies and not as valued by the university because of that. Um, but it doesn't stop the people from within the program doing the work that they do and also fostering a space where like, although we're a small program, when people come here, like they wanna be here because of the kind of community we have. So that has been rewarding and it makes it a lot easier to push forward and progress in the work, even though sometimes it's just really expensive to live, which feels like everywhere these days. So that too, <laughs> yeah. It is everywhere, but I think especially in California, right? Everybody wants the the balmy weather and the uh, yeah, that's that's not fun. That's not good, but interesting um, to be involved in all of that. Well, not interesting. I wish you didn't have to deal with that on top of everything else. So thanks for sharing all of that. Um, I, I also want to know what guidance or advice you would give to somebody interested in pursuing a PhD? I would tell someone who wants to pursue a PhD to one, do it because they want to. And I think that's so important because I see so much, I saw so much advice floating after I already accepted to be in a program. And I feel like a lot of people try and steer, young people especially, away from doing PhDs. And I understand why for some of the reasons I talked about, but if you like, if you love learning and you love reading, and like, even if you just like to look at books or like just look at writing or listen to people talk about their writing, like I feel like that is more than enough of a reason to be in a PhD because it's inspiring to see how much work people put into owning their craft and like owning like how they can make sure that their craft is always up to the standard that they want it to be at. And I feel like that's basically what it means to be doing like advanced work of any sort it's because you are interested in perfecting your craft in some way shape or form um even if there's nerves about what that looks like i say you just throw yourself in it and um also don't be afraid of the community that comes out of just stepping into the fear of being in a phd program like step into that fear let the fear guide you and also let the people around you support you as you work through that fear because i think inevitably it will be something wonderful whatever it is whether it's the dissertation the relationships you make or just being able to live in a new space i love california <laughs> so even if it's an opportunity to just be somewhere that's not that's where you want to be yeah that that would be my advice This episode of 2400 Chew was produced by the Office of Alumni Affairs at Muhlenberg College. It was recorded remotely and engineered in the studios of WMUH Allentown, Pennsylvania. Our opening and closing music from Cowboy Bebop is performed by the Muhlenberg College Jazz Big Band.